Gospel according to Luke chapter 1. And if you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 1089. A couple weeks ago, we read the story of uh, Gabriel announcing John's birth to his father, father, Zechariah, who had difficulty uh, believing that it would happen because he and his wife, Elizabeth, had gone so many years childless. And as a result of his unbelief, God temporarily rendered Zechariah unable to speak. I was looking over that uh, story again this week, and I noticed something that I, I didn't catch before. You know, it's wild how you can study it and study it and then go back and then see something you didn't see before. So the last thing that Zechariah says before he goes mute is in chapter 1, verse 18. He says, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So in other words, the last thing Zechariah says is my wife is old. And uh, it occurred to me that maybe God was showing mercy to Zechariah by shutting him up before Elizabeth could. Um, and, and of course, I, I'm kidding. There may be some truth that I don't know. But this morning, God is going to restore Zechariah's speech. And before we hear what he says, I just simply want to point out to you that we have every reason to listen intently to what this man has to say. Luke has already told us that Zechariah was righteous. And on top of being righteous, he's now had 40 weeks to ponder silently what God is doing. And so I want us to listen intently to this righteous man who has endured the school of affliction and has come out with increased faith. So let's read together in Luke chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, He shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid, up, laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the, God, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be safe from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. 
And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pause there and we'll pray together. Lord, we are thank- thankful for what you did in the life of Zechariah. And I pray, Lord, that in some way you might do it in us this morning as well. That you might uh, increase our faith. That you might chastise us. That we might trust you all the more. That you would sanctify us. And Lord, um, that through your word you would draw people to yourself. So would you do that now? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Just a a minute ago here in the sanctuary, we sang the hymn, What Child Is This? And I want you to notice that the question, what child is this, comes up here in Luke 1, except the people don't ask it about Jesus. They ask it about John. Look again at verse 65. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So there were some things that happened. All these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard these things laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? So what were the things that caused the people to ask, What then will this child be? There are at least three highly unusual events here. The first is that Elizabeth gives birth. Uh, Luke has already established that she was advanced in age. He doesn't tell us how old she was, just that she was advanced. she She was barren. Uh, But God opens her womb and she bears a son. And everyone around her sees this birth as God's merciful intervention. Notice verse 58. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. So that's the first thing that happens that's unusual here. Is that... Elizabeth gives birth. The second highly unusual event has to do with John's name. Now, we've got to sort of take ourselves out of our our culture here and think about the culture that Zechariah and Elizabeth lived in. Rebecca and I have had the, uh, the weighty task of naming two children. And in both cases, we took that responsibility very seriously. We put a lot of thought into it because this is something they are going to have their entire life. And uh, if you pick the wrong name, they're going to get made fun of in the middle school locker room. If the initials are something crass, it's not going to work, right? If their name rhymes with something, then kids are going to rhyme it. We've all been there, at least I was. Um, So we put a lot of thought into those names. In neither case, however, in naming our two sons, in neither case did we feel like we should should get someone's permission. We should should poll 
our family and ask all the parents and grandparents and ask our community, maybe come here to church and say, hey, we're thinking about naming this son Nixon. What do you guys think? We didn't do that. We just said his name is Nixon. His name is Patrick. And if you don't like that, that's your problem. I don't care. We didn't ask your permission. We didn't ask anyone's approval or affirmation about the names that we selected. Zachariah and Elizabeth, however, lived in a very different context, in a much more communal society. Luke mentions the neighbors and relatives. He mentions them in verse 58. Now, notice what he says in verse 59, after he's just mentioned the neighbors and relatives. He says, And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. Now, we got to use some context clues here. You don't even have to know the whole thing about that it was a more communal society. You can just read the text carefully and, and notice when Luke says they would have called him Zechariah, he's not talking about his parents because then the sentence doesn't make any sense. If he says they would have called him Zechariah, they being his parents, but his mother said no. That doesn't make any sense. So when he says they would have called him Zechariah, he's talking about the community. He's talking about the neighbors and relatives. Naming was a communal act. People had a say in it, which is why Elizabeth has to intervene and say, no, he shall be called John. So what do they do? They say, well, there's got to be some mistake here because there's nobody in their family named John this, is, this goes against all the sort of cultural norms that we have. And, and maybe there are some people who are thinking, you know, poor Zachariah literally can't speak up for himself. So she's just, you know, railroading him here, and she's picked some random name. And so they go to Zachariah, and they say, what, what, do we, what, are, what do you want this child to be called? And they have to sign and all this kind of thing. And so Zachariah gets a, a tablet, and he writes on it in a very matter-of-fact way, his name is John. And I just love that. His name is John. I mean, how straightforward it is. It's not up for debate. He's even more emphatic than, than Elizabeth was. Elizabeth said, no, he shall be called John. Zachariah says his name is John. He's already John. God gave him the name. God's the one who through the angel Gabriel said, you will call him John. So in Zachariah's mind, it's already a settled fact it's not up for debate. It's not a question. It's not what are we going to name him? What are we going to call him? Should we call him Zechariah or John? His name is John. And you can hear in that some of his faith. You can hear in that um, some of what God has been doing in the heart of Zechariah for the past 40 weeks. But that's the second highly unusual event. It's one that causes the people to sort of scratch their heads and say, this is weird. Okay, so Elizabeth gives birth. Then John is named John. And then the third highly unusual event is that Zechariah starts talking again. He's been silent ever since he first heard about this. And Luke says in verse 64 that immediately, immediately after he gets the tablet and he writes down his name is John, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. Now, I just want you to think about a mental exercise for a moment. 
that this were you and, um, you know, you had been, by, by God's divine intervention, God had made you silent for 40 weeks. What would be the first thing you would say? I don't know. I mean, I'm hungry. <laughs> I've, been, I've been wanting to go to McDonald's for 40 weeks, but I couldn't tell y'all or something like that, you know. But he, the first thing Zechariah does when his mouth is opened is he just starts blessing God. He starts praising God. He starts worshiping. And it's a combination of all of these unusual events, Elizabeth's childbearing, John's name, and Zechariah's speech that causes the people to ask, what then will this child be? This is very strange. What, what will this child be? Because the hand of the Lord is clearly with him. But of course, the point of drawing our attention to John is to get us to see how far Jesus exceeds him. So when I, when I said a minute ago that we sang the song, What Child Is This?, but they asked the question about John, the point is not that we should stop singing the song, What Child Is This?, the point is, if it was necessary for these people to ask of John, what then will this child be? How much more should we ask of Jesus, what child is this? And so you can, you can hear that contrast between John and Jesus, even in Zechariah's prayer of blessing. So just as Mary spoke a, a psalm of thanksgiving, Zechariah, with his newly regained ability of speech, issues a psalm of, of praise and prophecy. Luke says in verse 64 that Zechariah blessed God. And he says in verse 67 that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And when you look at his psalm, that's really the two parts is that he begins by saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He says that in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And then when you get down to verse 60, uh, 76, he turns and he, he's no longer speaking directly to God, but he's actually speaking to his newborn son, John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. So he blesses God and filled with the Holy Spirit, he prophesies. Those are the two parts of the psalm. Praise and prophecy, and I want to approach those uh, two angles in, in reverse order so that we end on a note of, of praise and blessing toward God. So I want us to start with Zechariah's prophecies, what he says about John and about Jesus, because his prophecy is not just about John, but it's also about Jesus. Both sons are in their own way fulfilling God's promises, but there is a fundamental difference, a contrast between these two sons. Uh, so again, in verse 76, Zechariah turns to John and says, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His way. So John is a very special figure with a pivotal role in God's plan, but there are some crucial distinctions between him and Jesus. I want to draw some of these out. So first, um, Zechariah says of John, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. But back in verse 32, when Gabriel was speaking to Mary and announcing to her the birth of Jesus, he said that Jesus will be called the Son of the Most High. And it's not an accident that 
Luke tells us in verse 32 that Jesus is going to be called the Son of the Most High. And then in verse 76 that John's going to be called the Prophet of the Most High. Because while it would certainly be an honor to be called the Prophet of the Most High, it pales pales in in comparison with being called the Son of the Most High. Because only Jesus is, is the Son. John is a servant. Jesus is the Son. He is one who shares in the nature of the Most High. And think about that phrase, the Most High. It's one of those phrases that is easy to kind of skim over, but it's a way of talking about God, the one than whom no one is higher. No one is higher than Him. No one has more authority than Him. No one has more power than Him. No one is greater than Him. And by calling Jesus the Son of the Most High, Gabriel was saying that he's going to share in the nature of the one than whom none is greater. So sons share in the nature of their father. Even if you have never seen my physical dad, you know he's a human and not a turtle because I'm a human. right? And so sons share in the nature of the one from whom they come. And so to call Jesus the Son of the Most High is to say he shares the nature of the Most High. So that's the first contrast, is that John is going to be called the prophet of the Most High, but Jesus is the Son of the Most High. Next, Zechariah tells John that he's going to go before the Lord to prepare his ways. John is a forerunner. But in chapter 2, when the angel announces Jesus' birth to the shepherds, he refers to the newborn Jesus as Christ the Lord. He's not just the Lord's Christ... He is Christ the Lord. He is the Lord. So John prepares the way for the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. And Zechariah tells John that the way way he will go before the Lord is, verse 77, by giving knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So the way that John is going to go before the Lord to prepare his ways is by being a herald being someone who announces salvation to the Lord's people, a salvation that comes from having their sins forgiven. So John is going to give knowledge of this salvation to the Lord's people, but Jesus is one who will secure this salvation. Jesus is the one who by His death and resurrection will purchase forgiveness of sins for God's people. So John is there to announce in advance what only Jesus is going to accomplish. John's role is to give knowledge of salvation. Jesus' role is to purchase salvation. John's knowledge is to announce the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' role is to accomplish the forgiveness of sins by His death and resurrection. And And Zechariah hints at this in verse 78 when he says, "...because of the tender mercy of our God..." whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, this is an important point. When Zechariah is speaking here, John has already been born. So we are in the uh, three-month window now, or the the six-month window, I guess it would be, between the birth of John and of Jesus. John is there 
He says, and you, child, he's looking his son in the eyes, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. But there in verse 78, he, he speaks of something that's gonna, that is to come, that's going to happen in the future. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall, future tense, visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So Zechariah anticipates something or someone to come. There, John is present, but there is a light that is still coming from God. John is not that light. Jesus is. The Apostle John, not to be confused with this John, the Apostle John put it this way in John chapter 1, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So this is the contrast. John was a witness about the light coming into the world, but Jesus himself is that light. Jesus is, in Zechariah's words, the sunrise that shall visit us from on high. So think about that, that image. Um, Zechariah speaks there of those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And when you hear the phrase shadow of death, what does that make you think of? Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And so the, the image here is of light that is breaking over the mountain into a valley. So think about John like a watchman who is perched up on top of a ridge. His job, because he can see more than the people who are in the valley can see. He can see farther than they can see. So John's role is to signal to the people down in the valley, the people who are sitting in darkness, the people who are in the shadow of death. His job is to signal, I'm, I can see over the horizon and I see the sunrise breaking. I see the sun beginning to dawn over the horizon. Light is coming. I know that right now you are in darkness, but light is coming. Warmth is coming. I know that it's cold in the valley, but I, I see the warm rays of the sun beginning to break over the horizon. Life is coming. I know that right now you're in the shadow of death, but life is coming, so get ready. John is the watchman on top of the ridge, but Jesus is the sunrise. Jesus is the sun breaking over the horizon and bringing light and warmth and life to those in the valley of the shadow of death. So in the, in the contrast between John and Jesus, Zechariah sees with eyes of faith what God is doing. And Zechariah blesses God for what he has done and what he is about to do. And so I said that there were two parts of the psalm. There was uh, prophecy and praise. So let's turn now from, from, from one to the other, from those prophecies that Zechariah speaks to the praise that he offers to God. His, his psalm opens in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Anytime the Bible speaks of God visiting his people, um, 
It's not about, you know, dropping in for a chat and a cup of coffee. God is present at all places, at all times. He exists outside of space and time. And so by saying that God has visited His people does not mean that God has somehow been absent and now He has returned. It is to say that He has brought His presence to bear in this moment. And whenever the Bible speaks this way of God's visitation, sometimes God visits in order to bring judgment. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, God's visitation is terrifying. Oftentimes, as well, his visitation is about bringing salvation, and many times it's both. He, he often brings salvation through judgment. But, but I want us to ponder with Zechariah what this visitation is, and where does it come from, and what purpose does it serve. So the nature of God's visitation yes. is redemption. That is what God has come to do to redeem. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. Verse 69, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. Um, we have, you know, Advent and the Christmas season are filled with lots of images. You know, there's the evergreen, there's there's lights, there's often gold and silver and um, nativity scenes and that sort of thing. And I've often thought maybe we should have a big horn in our house to celebrate Christmas because this is what Zechariah says God has done. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he's not talking about a horn like a trumpet or something like that. He's talking about a part of an animal. And throughout the Bible, the horn is a common biblical symbol of strength, just as we saw in Mary's psalm where she said that God has shown His arm. It was a sign of His power. In a similar way, um, a horn is the, the powerful forward part of the, the bull. It is the, the part of the bull that, that it uses to, to defend itself, to, to bring safety and so by raising up in Jesus a horn of salvation, God is bringing into the world one in whom He will redeem and save and defend His people. Zechariah says in verse 71 that we should be saved from our enemies. And in verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. So an important question is, which enemies does Zechariah have in mind? From, from what kind of enemies has Jesus come to deliver us? Now, first of all, let's say this is not always the first thing we think about when we think about the little, you know, bitty baby lying in a manger. But the New Testament teaches us very clearly that this little bitty baby came to defeat Satan. He came to crush the head of the serpent. So it would be, it would be tempting either A, to, to not think about this at all, or B, to think only in spiritual terms, that Jesus has come to save us from the enemies of sin and death and, and Satan and that sort of thing. And that's certainly true. Paul says in Colossians 2 that God has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So through his death and resurrection, Jesus removed the penalty of sin against God's people. And by removing that debt, he has disarmed our spiritual enemies. Satan cannot accuse us because the record of debt has been canceled. Sin cannot hold us in its power because he has freed us from its grip. So Jesus has come to deliver us from them. That surely has to be part of what Zechariah means when he says that we should be safe from our enemies. But we need to be careful not to strip this down and hear this only in spiritual terms. Because Zechariah, as a, a faithful first century Jewish man who knew God's word, he would surely have seen in the arrival of the Messiah an expectation that God is going to deliver his people from literal enemies of oppression and death as well. And it's, it's not that Zechariah is wrong. It is just that from his vantage point in history, he saw what God had promised through the prophets, that the Messiah is going to redeem God's people, forgive them of their sins, and he is going to free them from oppression and death. And from Zechariah's vantage point in history, it looked like that was all about to happen in one fell swoop. And what we can see from our vantage point in history is that what God had promised through the prophets and what Zechariah began to see would actually take place in not one advent, but in two advents. That in the first advent of Jesus, He came in humility to obey unto the point of death, to fulfill all righteousness. But in His second advent, Jesus will come again in glory to subject every enemy under His feet. And not only will our souls be redeemed, but so will our bodies. And so will all of creation. Everything will be made new. All things will be made right. That is the nature of God's visitation in Christ. He has come to redeem. The next thing I want us to see is where does this visitation come from? Obviously, short of saying it comes from God. The basis of God's visitation is His mercy. His mercy. We hear this in, in Mary's psalm and we hear it as well in Zechariah's psalm. Look again at verse 71. He says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. God had promised mercy. He had promised grace. And in Christ, He was being good on that promise. This is why God saves. This is why He sent Jesus. This is why He visited His people to display His mercy. So God committed Himself to redeeming a people for Himself when He swore a covenant with Abraham. He didn't have to do that. You realize that, right? He didn't have to promise, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to make you the father of a multitude, and I'm going to bless the whole world through your descendants. God didn't have to promise that, but He did. That was mercy. And now... God is being good on that promise. He's fulfilling it. And so both the promise and the fulfillment 
are mercy. Neither of them are earned. Neither of them are obtained by us. Both are in accordance with His mercy. And this mercy is equal parts compassionate and powerful. It is displayed in God delivering His people from the hand of their enemies. So that's a display of power. But Zechariah also refers in verse 78 to the tender mercy of God. So God's mercy is not just ooey-gooey, mushy, sentimental, I love you, but I can't do anything to help you. His mercy is powerful. His mercy is able. But His mercy is also not just so powerful and able that He doesn't care and says, well, I guess I have to do this. No, His mercy is compassionate. It's tender. He has compassion on His people. And He acts in powerful, steadfast faithfulness to redeem and to defend His people. So the nature of God's visitation is is redemption. He came to redeem. The basis is His mercy. This is why He came to redeem. And then third, the goal of God's visitation is our holy service. God came in Christ to redeem a people from sin and death and Satan and oppression and death so that... You can hear the purpose statement in verse 74. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without Without fear, fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. So God frees us from the power of sin. He frees us from the accusation of Satan. He frees us from the fear of death, not so that we will be free to do as we please, but so that we will be free to serve Him without fear. And you see this consistently throughout the Bible. Why, in the book of Exodus, why does God say that He's going to redeem His people from their slavery in Egypt? So that they will be free to serve Me. Let My people go, so that they may go out into the wilderness and serve Me. Peter, in 1 Peter 2.16, urges us, Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. God frees us so that we will be free to serve Him. And even here in Zechariah's psalm, he closes it by speaking of Jesus as the sunrise that shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And notice, to guide our feet into the way of peace. When God says that He frees us to serve Him. It's not that He's doing us a favor so that we can then do something for Him that He needs from us because He doesn't need us to serve Him. He existed for all of eternity just fine without us serving Him. So when He says that, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear, God is doing that for our sake because we are created not for ourselves. We are created not to serve ourselves. We're not created to live for ourselves. We're not created to look out only for our interests. God created us to live in relationship to Him, the one who made us, and to live in relationship with others who are also created in His image. And this is partly what Zechariah means when he says that Jesus came not just to enlighten, but to guide our feet into the way of peace. The word peace 
is the equivalent of the Hebrew word shalom. And that word is not just a greeting. It is a very important word in Hebrew because it's a word that signifies wholeness in every sense of the word. God has come to redeem in order to bring shalom, to bring wholeness, which is not just some kind of internal satisfaction. It is God has come to set us back into the way He made us to be, to live in relationship with Him, to have a rich relationship with the one who created us, and to experience rich relationships with other people who are made in God's image. Lots of people's lives are, are broken. And, and the only other word I could think of to, to describe the opposite of shalom was the word thin. Just this sense of there's not much to it. And shalom, peace, this, this idea of, of wholeness, of fullness... Jesus came to guide us into the way of peace. And He did that by coming to die and to conquer death through His resurrection. And He's coming again to redeem and to restore in the fullest sense. But the point is, we don't find wholeness. We don't find peace. We don't find shalom by living for our own fulfillment and satisfaction. We find peace by living a life of serving God without fear in holiness and righteousness. I heard an interview a few years ago with this, this guy who's essentially a talent agent who works with these super-duper celebrities. I don't know if this guy's a Christian. Maybe he is, maybe he's not. But he said something that caught my ear. He was talking about trying to help celebrities deal with their fame. These people who have accomplished so much and yet they often feel so empty and the thing that he says I tell them is humans were not made to be worshipped. Now again, I don't know if this guy's a, a Christian or not, but he's figured out something that is true, whether you're a Christian or not, that humans were not made to be worshipped. Humans don't exist to be the center of the world. If that's how you live your life, you're going to feel isolated. You're going to feel lonely. And you don't have to be super famous to be that way. You don't have to be super famous and wealthy, to live as if you were the center of the world. Jesus came to put us into perspective, to remind us that God is at the center of all the things He has created, and our lives make the most sense when we are in His orbit, not vice versa. And so we find peace by living a life of serving God without fear in holiness and righteousness. Jesus does not redeem us for our own sake. He redeems us so that we will be free to serve, free to give, free to live in holiness before God and in peace with others. I began this morning by saying that we ought to listen to Zechariah because he had been chastised over these 40 weeks. Zechariah was a little bit like Job, who at the end of Job could say, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees. Zechariah, by God's grace, learned something about God and about himself that he could not have learned unless he had gone through this affliction. And he comes out, by God's grace, 
with increased faith. And you can hear that when he, when he writes, his name is John. And you can hear that certainly in the words he speaks in this psalm. But I want to turn that question back to you this morning and to me. Here's the question that I want us to, to ponder together to leave thinking about today. What is God trying to do in your life? What is God working in your life through all that He has allowed to unfold? What, what is God doing? Zechariah could have turned inward, and that's what happens sometimes when, when we experience hardship as people turn inward. They curve in on themselves, and they become self-involved, self-obsessed. Every hardship, every affliction is an opportunity either to do that or to turn outward to God and to others, to orient ourselves to, to what is God trying to teach me and how is He trying to put me back in my place. So if every hardship is an opportunity, then I would suggest to you that this year has been filled with opportunities. It's been an opportunity-rich year for many people. And I don't say that to in any way make light of what has happened this year. I simply say that to say that whether you felt that way or not, you know, whether you felt like this year has been difficult or whether you feel like it's just been different and weird, Whenever we experience hardship and affliction, those are opportunities. We can turn inward or we can look upward and bless God, as Zechariah did, and we can look outward and say, how, how is God giving me in this, through this, an opportunity to serve Him? And oftentimes the way we serve Him is by serving others. So will you look to Him in faith? And if you're looking to Him in faith, will you consider how you can serve Him without fear? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation here in a moment. This is an opportunity to respond to God's Word. And um, we see how Zechariah was chastised and how he came out with increased faith and an increased resolve to live his life for the Lord. And so I pray the same for you. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your Word and how you often challenge us, how you... Um, question our um, assumptions and how you don't leave us to ourselves. Lord, we're thankful for how over and over through your word you consistently speak to your people because we are constantly in need of reminding. We're constantly in need of remembering what you have told us. And so I pray this morning that you would help us not to forget, that you would help us not to turn a deaf ear to what you have said, but Lord, that we would be silent that we would listen, that we would ponder, that we would wonder and marvel in our hearts at what you have said. And God, that every single one of us would ask, what, Lord, what are you trying to do? And how can I align myself with your purposes in my life and in this world? God, help us. Lord, and if there is anyone within the sound of my voice right now who has never uh, come to you in faith, who has never put their trust in you, Lord, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would draw them to faith and to repentance, that you would help them to see how broken and thin their life is. And Lord, that they would see that they have been made by someone who has infinite power 
And that same one who is infinitely powerful and infinitely holy sent them a redeemer that they might have a relationship with you, Lord. So I pray, Lord, that you would move in their heart and draw them to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Number four.